open the word of God and allow the Lord to feed his flock, his sheep, the ones for whom he uh, shed his blood to redeem. His word will be given to us through this vessel that he in his grace has chosen to serve in this manner. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, you may notice that we're in Matthew again. We'll continue to be there for a while and um, um, I hadn't planned to uh, do this, but as I began to uh, do it a few weeks back during the Christmas time, it, I felt that this was the place to be in these days. So here we are in Matthew uh, again, um, Matthew chapter 4, the place I just mentioned beginning at verse 18. Let me uh, read these verses for you. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I'm using as a subject uh, right out of the text from Jesus, fishing for men. One of the great blessings of the Christian life is reaching lost and dying men with the gospel. The world, as you all know, celebrates those who express heroism in saving someone's physical life, and rightly they should do that. Those first responders and what they do to deliver people from imminent death is noteworthy, and we ought to honor them. But may I say to you, there is nothing comparable to being used of the Lord in saving a soul from eternal damnation. From John fifteen sixteen, Jesus told his original disciples this, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And in that text, uh, there in the upper room, as Jesus spoke to his original disciples, that word fruit includes the result of leading people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Paul used the word fruit in the same sense in Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Fruit then equals people who have eternal life because they savingly respond to the gospel. The Bible employs different images to make the same point about bringing people to salvation. For instance, You've all read and you've seen and you understand the, the image, the analogy of a shepherd seeking lost sheep. There is the parable of the sower that Jesus told and he spoke of a sower spreading seed in a field, meaning the word of God was proclaimed, is broadcast among people and those people receive that word which has been sown and there are four different results. That's all about bringing people to a saving knowledge of Christ. It is all about evangelism. It's all about talking about it. It uses a different figure to make the same point. Fishing for the souls of men. That's the work that Jesus called these men to do, and that's what we're all called to do. Fishing for men, to catch men for salvation. And interestingly, he uses people, he uses 
ordinary, everyday people. And there's no greater privilege in my thinking than that the Lord of heaven and earth who could do it all by himself without us at all. He chooses to employ us in this marvelous, mighty, noble work of calling our fellow human beings to faith in him. We see here in this text the calling of the first four disciples of our Lord. And our Lord's walking along the Sea of Galilee. And let me just pause for a moment, if you will, uh, just to talk about the Sea of Galilee, because you'll read about it in uh, the rest of the scripture, and you have. Luke 5, 1, for example, calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. In John chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 21, verse 1, is uh, designated as both the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias. Tiberius is called that named after a Roman emperor. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a body of water, obviously, and is measured 13 miles in length and 7 miles in width, and it was 790 feet below sea level. The, the sea was shaped, or is shaped, like a harp. Today, that body of water is called Yam Kinnereth. If you go there, that's what you'll say, and they'll tell you that's the one that you were talking about from the Bible. The Sea of Galilee has been said to be, quote, the most sacred sheet of water in the world. So why is that? For it is intimately associated with many of the most interesting events in the life of our Lord and his disciples. You recall in our Lord's ministry, there was an incident when the storm rose. He was going across the lake. He had told the disciples, go to the other side. And from ministering all day, he was exhausted. He was tired. And he went to sleep. And he was sleeping so soundly, so deeply, that the storm arose. And the disciples were afraid. And the water's coming into the boat. And they thought they were going to die. And they went and woke him up and said, Master, do you not care they were perishing? The Sea of Galilee, Jesus gets up and he says, hush, be still powerful word and suddenly the life-threatening storm the sea the waves all of that stopped immediately because the creator said so on that lake as well remember during the fourth night jesus sent the men out on the boat and they were trying roaring roaring his fourth watch of the night they see a figure walking and this figure is walking on the water which the creator could do he could solidify the water and walk on it like we walk on pavement is he coming toward them and Peter you recall said if it's you uh, bid me come and the Lord said it is I and Peter began too to walk on the water the sea of Galilee so this is this lake that's why it's called the most sacred sheet of water on the planet because of his association with Jesus and the miraculous and what he did and demonstrating who he is now in our text the event that had happened prior to the things i just mentioned he's walking on the sandy shores of that sea and he calls his first disciples to a spiritual work you need to understand this is not their first time uh, encountering the lord jesus christ in fact they had uh, met him earlier and we know this because in the parallel account in the Gospel of John, we know this is to be the case. The two brothers that are mentioned in uh, verse 18 of Matthew 4, Simon was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, met the Lord as John chapter 1 verse 35 tells us. 
Remember, during the ministry of John the Baptist, was the forerunner of our Lord. And verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples who were standing with him heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And, of course, in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and stayed with him as the tenth hour. I'm running through this now. Let's get down to verse 40. And it says this, One of the two heard John speak and followed him. One of the two heard him say, This is the Lamb of God, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, let me just digress for a moment. Do understand that since uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was there with John the Baptist, he had already repented. He had turned from his sins. He had been baptized by John. All of that is the case. But he heard the message from John that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as he later says in verse 29. This is the Lamb of God. It's what he does. Verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon. And said to him, we have found the Messiah. Which translated means Christ. He understood that the Lamb of God is none other than the Messiah. Andrew believed and he told his brother, we found him. In verse 42, and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which is translated Peter. You say, what does Cephas mean other than Peter? In Greek, translated into our English, Cephas uh, means stone. Peter is English from the Petros, uh, the Greek meaning stone. Jesus gave him that name. So that's how these men met him. This is their call to salvation. They came to understand he's Messiah. That's when they met him. But what we're talking about here in our text this morning is not the call to salvation. It's the calling to ministry, service. Those who've been born again, those who come to faith in Messiah to the Lord Jesus Christ, then will serve him. And that's what he is calling them to do. Let's look at these men here in verse 18 of Matthew 4. A brief word about them, what they were like. Simon Peter. I think all of us who've ever read the New Testament, uh, we have a pretty good idea what Simon Peter was like. Well, let me just give you a brief reminder. Number one, he was uh, the natural leader of the 12. He is listed first in the list of disciples. They're, they're all apostles, but he was the first among equals. He, he was the leader. You know how Peter was. He was always asking questions, always following closely behind Jesus. Peter also was impetuous. Peter would often put his foot in his mouth. He'd say things when he should have been quiet. Even at one time, you recall in Matthew 16, uh, when Jesus said he's going to whoop Jerusalem, he's going to die. And, and he said, oh, no, 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 Lord, far be it from you. That ain't going to happen. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. It's Peter. Peter looms large. In the gospels, in fact, in major stories in the gospel feature him. So this man, Peter, you can't miss him. In fact, Peter preached the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost and God the Holy Spirit used him. 3,000 people 
came to faith. Then later, it's like Peter wrote, as you remember, as you know, you've read them, his two letters that bear his name. Then there's the brother who brought Peter to the Lord, Simon. Simon. Or Andrew, I mean, Andrew, his brother. Verse 18, Andrew, who brought his brother to meet Christ, is less prominent in the Gospels, as we're all aware of. His personality different from uh, his brother. You don't see Andrew uh, being uh, impetuous, doing the things that Peter did. But we see him on several occasions bringing people to Christ. A boy with five loaves and two fish brought him to Jesus. There are some Greeks who wanted to see Jesus, and Andrew is instrumental in telling Jesus about these Greeks that wanted to see him. Remember that in John chapter 12. We discern differences between these biological brothers, and even between them and the other pair, James and John, who are biological brothers as well. What does that tell us about the call to ministry? I'll tell you what it tells me in this, and I think you'll concur. Christ call, calls and uses people with different temperaments, talents, and strengths. He doesn't use people who are all the same. God doesn't have a single template for his servants. There are no cookie-cutter Christians. Your personality to be different from someone else's personality. All of that, we're all different. God has made us different. And so the reality is what we do, he ser- we can serve him with all of our uniqueness. That should encourage you. You might say, well, I'm not like so-and-so. That's good. God doesn't want you to be like so-and-so. He wants you to be like you. Be you, because he made you to be used by him in the way that will bring him glory and honor. So we have these two men. They were casting their head in the sea. They were fishing. But before we go further, verse 19, let's drop down to verse 21. Let's look at the second pair of brothers. Talking about the calling of the first four here. And so Jesus going on from there is still in the Sea of Galilee. And James and John were similar in personality because Jesus nicknamed these guys. Called them the sons of thunder because they're fiery personality. These guys, uh, they had to learn how to love. <laughs> they didn't um, come out to shoot that way. Luke chapter 9, verse 53, I think it is, helps us see this, illustrates this. In fact, let's look at verse 51 of Luke 9, and you can see uh, these guys and their fiery personalities. Been with Jesus a while, but we're going to stay with him a little longer. Luke chapter 9, it says this, When the days were approaching for his ascension, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die and then go back to heaven, And he sent messengers, our Lord did, on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. The village of Samaritans. Now, you know the history of Jews and Samaritans. These two didn't get along. There's animosity between them. 
those two groups. But they did not receive him, the Samaritans, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, they didn't pull that out of the air. They remembered uh, what Elisha did. Elijah, remember, uh, the king had sent his military, and Elijah called down fire and consumed these men who wanted to take the prophet in the Old Testament, Second Kings. No doubt they remembered that. So, well, Lord, can't we do that? They don't want to accept you? We'll just burn them up. Verse 55. But he's turned and rebuked them. Jesus did. In verse 56. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. My point is this with these guys. Their personality. I mean, they were to destroy somebody. They had to be trained. But you. You know, I've been around a lot of Christians. Christian leaders for a long, long time. And none of us are there yet where we ought to be. The Lord is still working on us. In fact, Jesus taught them and refined them. That's the expression of his training them. said, guys, that's not how we do it. It's not how I do it. John, you recall, he wrote the gospel that bears his name. He, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those three epistles. And he also wrote in the book of Revelation. Because of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and emphasis on love, John, who wanted to destroy the Samaritans, became known as the apostle of love. Because the Lord changed him refined him and can use him he does that with all of us as we follow the Lord he's in that process of refining us changing us and making us more like himself now another thing I think we want to understand about these men particularly these two here James, the brother of John, these boys of Zebedee, he was the first apostle martyred. Acts chapter 12 tells us this. John, on the other hand, lived into his 90s and was exiled on the island of Patmos because, as it says in Revelation 1-9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Not only are God's people different, Christ also has different plans for his people. Regardless of the differences of personality, talents, etc., they were called to the same task, and so are we. God's plan for you would be a different one for me. It would be different for me. But he calls us to the same endeavor, the same task. We're not the same in personality, strengths, and weaknesses. But we have the same job, the gospel. So there's a calling of the four, the first four. 
Let's look at the next point here I want to make. Comes out of the text in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Verse 19. In fact, follow me literally means come after me. Come after me. Come behind me, alongside me. Students would follow rabbi. Rabbi means a teacher, as you recall. And so they would follow the rabbi or the teacher, and they would learn from him. He would teach as he walked along the way. It was a peripatetic thing, a walking, peripatetic to walk. And that's what Jesus did. He'd walk about, and he would teach and train. You see that in the gospel. Now, they would literally follow the Lord. Uh, yes, they had to literally do that, of course, but it's deeper than that. It entails um, discipleship. Come learn from me. You're my student. This was a command to them. Command to them. And certainly, uh, that's the way it is. He is the Lord. He commands, come. Any man who wants to come after me must first, what, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let me say something about disciples. Jesus is not playing. There are a lot of people who sit in churches who are comfortable. They, they prayed a prayer, you know. I prayed the sinner's prayer, and they think, boom, I'm on my way to heaven. But they have absolutely no interest in following Jesus. That is, doing what Jesus wants. They veto what the Word says. Oh, I ain't doing that. I, you know, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I got my fire insurance. Jesus said, no, come after me. Follow me. And he has the right to do that. In fact, I, I think we can draw some uh, some things, a number of things about our relationship to the Lord. First of all, he has authority over us. He is our Lord. We're not our own. We were bought by a price. First Corinthians 6.20, I think it is. He purchased us with his own blood. He died for us. Therefore, we lost the right to call the shots in our life. The Lord Jesus has the right to interrupt and redirect our lives for his purposes. And that's precisely what he does with these men. He didn't ask them what they thought about it. He said, follow me. This is Jesus' lordship. And then you see what he does. Verse 19, and I will make you fishers of men. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. David Platt in his book, Follow Me, says about this, quote, Jesus tells them what he will cause them to do. The commands he would give them could only be accomplished by the work he would do in them as these disciples followed Jesus. He would transform everything about their lives, their thoughts, their desires, their wills, their relationships, and ultimately the very purpose for which they lived. End of quote. He's right. It's radical. Jesus changes even the reason we live. Many people think that Jesus just wants to give us, give us a ticket out of hell. It's more than that. 
He says, of men. They would not fish in the Sea of Galilee, therefore, but they would fish in the Sea of Humanity. Let me say something about fishing. Fishing is uh, based on deceit, isn't it? I mean, you put on a hook and line, and they use a net, but what we do when we fish are those who do that. I don't. I've seen it done. I fished once. My dad took my sister and me when we were little kids out to this pond, and uh, he didn't get to fish because he was baiting our hooks, and every time we threw the hook in, a perch got on the thing, and we, man, I think we caught 22 perch. That was a great fish. I wish I could win people of Christ like that. But we deceive the fish because the fish thinks it's food. They don't know they're going to be food. But that's not what Jesus is saying. There's no element of deceit here. What we give in fishing for men is not some way of deceit by using bait to trick them. We're giving them truth. Eternal truth. They're deceived by Satan and the world. So here we come along with the gospel with the truth. The truth they need to hear about their condition, about their soul, about their destiny apart from Jesus Christ. So it's no trickery involved in fishing for men. Now, when Jesus tells us, I'll make you fishers of men, he is saying, as a result of being a disciple, you know, following him, they make disciples. And that's what we do. We follow him, we make disciples. Some implications of this may be drawn from the words of Jesus and apply to us here, I think. And let me give them to you as I thought about these things. Number one, about being a fisher of men, we are to be intentional in fishing for men. We're to take the gospel to others. Haven't you noticed fishermen go fishing? They get in their trucks or the van, the RV, or whatever it is, and they go there. They go where the fish are. They're intentional. But I don't have to use that illustration to explain that. Jesus did it. In verse 23 of this very passage, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went where they were. He was a fisherman par excellence. Later in Matthew 10, he commissions the, the 12 and he sends them out to preach the kingdom. It's intentional. In Luke chapter 10, remember the 70? He sent them out. It's intentional. Now, there are more than 500 gathered when Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven in Matthew's gospel, the conclusion of it, because I know what you're thinking. Well, that's those disciples. I ain't one of them. 500 means there are some people who were not originally part of this group. In addition to them now, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And it didn't stop there. That that passage is to hold the church because Jesus, verse 20 says, 
I will be with you to the end of the age. Those original people who heard that, they're all in heaven. <laughs> the end of the age has not come. We're still in it. Therefore, it applies to us. So we're to be intentional. Another thing, we're to be indiscriminate. We indiscriminately share the gospel. There are fishing tournaments. I'm sure you've heard of them, such as uh, ones dedicated to catching bass. Bass fishermen, they're not interested in crappie or catfish. They want to catch nothing but bass. And like that kind of fishing, ours is to fish for all men. I just quoted from uh, part of Matthew 28, verse 19, that word nations, ethnoi, plural in the original. And it means ethnic groups, all kinds of people. We don't fish for just one kind. We share the gospel with any and everybody. We are to view all people as potential followers of Christ and proclaim the gospel to them. Now, I know some of you uh, said, wait, 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 wait. I think I read somewhere, you did, in Matthew. Matthew 10. Where it appears that there's a contradiction. Because Jesus said, I'm sending it only to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 10, 5, 5 and 6. Well, you need to understand something. Uh, they were to take the gospel to the covenant people first. It wasn't a matter of exclusion, but priority. On their training mission, no doubt, if they encountered uh, somebody who was not a Jew, they would give them the gospel. To the Jew first and the Greek, that's the priority. They're the covenant people. That's what we're to do. Take it to all people. And that's the way it is now. Because in Matthew 28, it says all nations, right? So we're to be intentional. We're to be indiscriminate. Sharing the gospel. Also, we must remember that we're not alone. Sometimes, uh, you can think you're all by yourself when you're obeying this command. You're not. We have supernatural help. John chapter 18, or 16, excuse me. John chapter 16 um, tells us. That we're not alone beginning at verse 8, tells us of the invaluable, indispensable role of the Holy Spirit in this ministry. This was, um, of course, we look back retrospectively at this time as prospective. Uh, the Holy Spirit is going to come in a, a, a different way from where he was in the world. He would be in the disciples. He would be helping them in their ministry. It says in verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's look at what these mean. That word convict, or conviction means convincing people of their need for the Savior. It takes a divine work. A mere human being can't do that. You can't argue anyone to the kingdom 
You give them the gospel, but the Holy Spirit must convince them that they need a Savior. Then there's a word concerning sin. Verse 9, because they do not believe in me. The sin of not believing in Christ as Lord, that is a sin. And they need to be made aware that their rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a sin. The Holy Spirit will convict them of that. And righteousness. Most people think they're righteous, don't they? They think they've got it together. I mean, after all, I'm better than so-and-so. I look at my life and I look at their life. And besides that, I am a little religious. I do do some religious things. What the Holy Spirit does, he um, disabuses people of that nonsense that they're somehow self-righteous and that's going to obtain for them eternal life. It cannot. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to do that, guys. While you're out proclaiming the gospel, while you're fulfilling the command, the Great Commission, this is the Holy Spirit's work in the world. He's our helper. And then there's uh, verse 11, judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Um, Judgment's Satan. Satan has been judged. Where was he judged? He was judged at the cross. Remember, it was uh, prophesied in Genesis three fifteen that Jesus would crush his head, the seat of the woman, and on the cross, Jesus judged him. He's been judged. And people have these false notions about Jesus Christ, instigated by Satan, who was a liar. And in the world system, he has all of this nonsense about the truth, about the gospel, about Christ. The Holy Spirit will convince people, show people, no, he's been judged. He's been judged. Now, not from this text, but elsewhere, let me tell you. I I mentioned earlier, I need to mention it again. Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. Uh, Some people like to use that to talk about when they're in the hospital, but that is not the text. That's not what the text means. The text means while you're out making disciples of all nations, Jesus, I promise to be with you. Apply that text rightly. Yeah, he's with you in the hospital, but don't use that text to use. (laughs) Not unless while you're on your deathbed or you're sick and whatever, you start telling people about the gospel. Then, yes. So he'll be with us. Now back in uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. How do these guys respond? Hmm. How do they respond? Look at it. Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Wow. Verse 22. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Is immediate. No hesitancy. Jesus said, come, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. And they obeyed. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. Quote, they come straightway. They come at all cost. They come without question. They come to quit old haunts. They come to follow their leader without stipulation or reserve. End of quote. 
I love that. They didn't say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but here are my stipulations or conditions. Da, 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 da. No, no, no. Well, I'm not sure, Jesus. I, got, uh, I have some reservations about this enterprise you're calling me to embark upon. No, none of that. It came at all costs. You, you see here in this text, they left their father Zebedee. They had to say, Dad, I'm sorry, but Jesus calling. Got to go. Jesus has to be supreme. By the way, John and James, this was a prosperous business because Zebedee had servants. These guys were bringing in the shekels. That's why Spurgeon says they come at all costs. Peter even later said to Jesus, uh, we've left everything to follow you. What will we get? May I say this? You cannot lose in following Jesus Christ. Because we know who he is. Matthew's told us. He was the virgin born son of God, right? He is called Emmanuel, God with us. He is the king of kings. You can't lose following Christ. Whatever you sacrifice for him, you haven't really lost anything. For what we receive in return far, far exceeds whatever in this life we lost in obedience to him. Let me conclude. Have you gone fishing lately? When I was growing up, there was a man in our community. I grew up with his sons. He and my father were, uh, I think they had known each other since childhood. This man um, loved to fish. He was either fishing or talking about fishing or had been fishing. Fishing divined that man's life. And what's interesting, last night I dreamed about him. I hadn't thought about it. I was like, why I dreamed about him? And I woke up this much. Oh, that's why. Fishing was important to him. Fishing for men is important to the Lord. And it should be to us as well. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. May we be faithful fishermen, the sea of humanity, disseminating the gospel to needy men who are lost in their sin, headed for eternal judgment. May you use us in our endeavors in this regard to bring many of them to the shores of salvation. That they may be numbered among those who will follow Jesus Christ, loving and serving him, and in turn, reaching others with the gospel of Christ. Strengthen this church, all who hear and will, 
in this regard for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.